Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Science of Genesis Paradise Lost series, released May 15, 2018, titled Part 3, Stretching the Heavens. Well, hey there. Uh, we got a few more minutes till you guys get to experience Genesis, so uh, I need something for you guys to do. Hey, Ralph. Yo. The vision of this film, what are you hoping to accomplish? We're trying to show that the Bible is true, but also the science to yes. back it up. If we're going to have a debate about science, can you please just be honest about it? Apologia presents The Science of Genesis, Paradise Lost. Part 3, Stretching the Heavens. If you're new to the series, click on the eye in the top corner to watch from the beginning. Having given a valid warning against starting with preconceived conclusions, the film once again alternates from talking head to Genesis 1 animation, the start of day four of creation. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven. You may recall from earlier in the movie, from day two, God made the firmament. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. The film interpreted day two firmament as clouds, the expanse between water above and water below. But Genesis day four clearly places stars in the firmament. For this to be a consistent interpretation, the sun and moon and stars would have to be below the clouds. But even Eric's team acknowledges that these celestial bodies are outside of the Earth's atmosphere, far beyond the clouds. It's disappointing that the film didn't propose a resolution to these conflicting ideas. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day. And the lesser light to rule the night. We know now that the moon is not itself a light source. It merely reflects the light of the sun. While one can certainly interpret the passage to allow for the moon as a light reflector rather than the light itself, such interpretation would not be the most plain reading. Once again, we're left to wonder which portions of the account are allowed to be interpreted and which are not. He made the stars also. If true, this is the ultimate understatement yada yada line in history. The story has spent the entire narrative on the tiny, tiny speck that is our galaxy and one throwaway line on the rest of the vastness of the universe. Oh, and stars also. That is impressive. Some astronomers have started asking questions about this. They say, why does the universe appear to be designed? I read this book written many years ago called The Anthropic Principle. It's a tome of over a thousand pages. There have been a number of books with a similar name. But I suspect Danny means this one from 1986 by John Barrow and Frank Tipler. It's only 706 pages, not over a thousand, but it's the oldest and longest of the candidates I found. They, they draw this interesting story that the world appears to be designed. When they got done, they said it just appears. 
appears to be design. There really is no design there. And I'm thinking, well, you, you look at the evidence and you deny that the evidence is there. Reaching a reasonable conclusion doesn't necessarily mean that one ignored opposing evidence. In fact, a reasonable conclusion requires that all evidence be considered as a whole and weighed in the context of all the known data. For example, if my bank was robbed and my fingerprints were found at the scene, then there is some evidence that I could have committed the crime. However, if at the same time of the stick-up there is video footage of me sitting at a crowded Starbucks several blocks away, I would likely be exonerated. But that wouldn't mean that the police denied the fingerprint evidence. It just wasn't that compelling in light of all of the evidence. So the real question we should ask is, what evidence did Barrow and Tipler consider that led them to rule out a designer? In their 700 pages, they attempted to show that it is from a narrow and self-selective perspective that our pattern-seeking brains infer design where there may be none. I often refer to the example of the sentient puddle by the late Douglas Adams. A puddle wakes up one morning and thinks, this is a very interesting world I find myself in. It fits me very neatly. In fact, it fits me so neatly. I mean, really precise, isn't it? <laughs> it must have been made to have me in it. How can you not believe that somebody designed all of this? Just like the puddle, we need to ask ourselves if it is more reasonable that the environment around us was made specifically for us, or have we been shaped to fit our environment? According to evolution theory or atheist evolution theory, the Big Bang created everything. It's important to note here that the theory of evolution says absolutely nothing about the Big Bang, cosmology of any kind, or even about the origin of life. Biological evolution in no way requires a naturalistic view of the origins of the universe. It speaks only to the variety of life and nothing at all about how the planet got here, that would be cosmology, or how life began, that would be abiogenesis. Millions of Christians affirm that God created the stars and the planets, but used evolution to diversify life. When the speakers in the film treat these as one field or one theory, they are presenting an imagined position that no one holds. Such a tactic is called a straw man argument, where a distorted version of an opponent's position is described, since a misrepresented position is often easier to dismiss than an actual position. The mighty God described in the Bible seems like he would never need to resort to tricks or distortion or dishonesty to defeat his opposition. If the Bible is truth, then it should want to go up against the mightiest strongholds to demolish them without fear. The Big Bang created everything. Much like the misrepresentation of evolution, the speaker now misrepresents the Big Bang theory as well. Cosmologists do not suggest that matter or energy came into existence at the time of the Big Bang. This is an important distinction as we proceed with this section of the film. The Big Bang event was merely a sudden expansion of space and already existing energy. Nothing was created, though from our perspective, this could be thought to mark the origin of our current incarnation of space and time. And stars contracted from gas clouds out of their gravity. That is correct. Well, it's impossible for stars to contract out of their gravity because as soon as you get a gas cloud that compressed, it's going to heat up and hot gases want to expand. Charles seems to be referring here to Boyle's Law, which states that the absolute pressure exerted by an ideal gas is inversely proportional to the volume it occupies if the temperature remains unchanged within a closed system. As it's going to come up a few times, let's take a minute to talk about what is meant in science by open, closed, and isolated systems. In an open system, 
both heat and matter can enter or leave the system. Think of a pot with no lid, for example. In a closed system, heat can enter or leave the system, but matter cannot. A pot with a sealed lid would be an example. Now an isolated system is completely sealed. Neither matter nor heat is exchanged with its surroundings. A sealed thermos would be the best example if we're staying in the world of food preparation. Many of the laws of thermodynamics relate only to such isolated systems. So it is in the case of Boyle's Law, which relates only to closed or isolated systems. Decrease the volume and you increase the pressure and the temperature. For example, squish an inflated balloon and it will get slightly hotter. But that's the part that Charles is ignoring. This is called an ideal gas law because it applies only in certain ideal conditions that are rarely replicated in nature. In particular, the molecule cloud is not a closed system. It is an open system. Heat from star formation can and does easily escape. And then that expansion force is a hundred times or more than the force of gravity. Where we find the gas clouds Charles speaks of, though more accurately called molecular clouds, they are at an equilibrium state between pressure, determined by temperature, density, and magnetic fields, and gravity. But because of the near-absolute zero temperatures, this equilibrium is very tenuous, and almost any motion event can tip the scales in gravity's favor, and the massive cloud will then fall in on itself. The cloud starts out at a relatively low density, and for a long while the heat from this increased pressure immediately radiates away without resistance. At this point, it is an open system. At some point, the condensing material goes from transparent to opaque, and at that point, the first photons become trapped and therefore increase the pressure to push back on gravity. Then, and only then, does trapped heat pressure build and build at a rate faster than gravity, as Charles suggests, because it has to catch up to the head start that gravity had. When the heat pressure force catches up to the force of gravity, the system reaches hydrostatic equilibrium, and it's called a protostar. Not all protostars will become stars, but it is a necessary first step. Star formation actually requires the very heat expansion force that Charles suggests is a problem. There are all these dog ate my homework stories about how gravity waves from black holes might do a push-pull thing on gas clouds and make this actually happen. But you got a chicken and the egg problem here because don't black holes come from stars? With gravity waves such a recent discovery, this is an odd claim and one I couldn't find in any searches. I was wondering if perhaps Charles was the one making up stories, until I found his chicken and egg problem phrasing in this 2015 article from Creation Ministries International. It isn't about gravity waves or black holes, though, but rather the role of dark matter tipping the scales for gravity in molecular clouds. Charles remembered the catchphrases, but not the science. Supernova shockwaves, in particular, were called out in the article. But this is no dog-ate-my-homework evidence-free story. It is observed. A well-known nursery for newborn stars is Nebula Hennessy 206. This infrared image shows a ring of green gas, which indicates the wake of an ancient supernova. At the fringes of that are newly formed stars. Astronomers affirm this as direct evidence that a supernova blast can trigger the collapse of a giant molecular cloud, and is but one of many examples. It is true that exploding stars cannot be the only possible catalyst for cloud collapse, or it would be a catch-22. But it is only one of a list of known catalysts that can upset the very fragile equilibrium. Two clouds can bump into each other, the cloud can pass through a galaxy spiral arm or some other moving body, or merely the accumulation of just enough additional material to tip the balance. 
We have two uh, very important concepts in, in physics called the first and second laws of thermodynamics. The first law says that energy is neither created nor destroyed. That's pretty good. The first law of thermodynamics is basically a restatement of the law of conservation of energy, which states that the total energy of an isolated system remains constant. Remember the definition of isolated systems from before, one where neither matter nor energy is introduced nor escapes. From context, I assume Danny will be referring to our universe as the system, and energy remains constant within any isolated system, like the universe. But, to say that this must hold outside of our universe would be merely a guess. It may or may not, and neither case would be a violation of the first law of thermodynamics. And equally as valid as the first law is the second law of thermodynamics, which says things are currently running down, energy is becoming less useful. The phrase running down isn't very precise, and could paint the wrong picture. The second law of thermodynamics says that within an isolated system, that's important, the total energy available for work will decrease over time. The useful amount of energy is always decreasing, and we measure this with a thing called entropy. Again, this is good and clear, and should be remembered. Entropy is related to the amount of energy in a system that is no longer available to do work. In the realm of physics and thermodynamics, entropy is not synonymous with things getting worse or more chaotic. Definitions are important, and Danny gives a good one. It is easy for people to misapply this physics property of entropy to unrelated concepts like biological evolution. I'm pleased that Eric's film avoids this particular mistake. The entropy is always increasing. It's almost like the world was wound up like a clock and it's been unwinding. We need to be careful here how one might use the word world. If world means the Earth, well, the Earth is not a closed or isolated system at all. Energy comes in constantly from the sun, and material also enters and leaves the Earth. If he more generally means the entire universe when he says the world was wound up, then we can proceed. The second law would seem to argue that the universe has not always existed. The material universe has not always existed. Indeed, it might argue that our current incarnation of the universe didn't always exist. Now, this is something already implied in Big Bang cosmology, so we wouldn't need to bring the second law of thermodynamics to bear, but that's fine. But the first law says you couldn't, couldn't have a beginning. Well, there's the mistake. The first law says that within an isolated system, our universe, that energy cannot be created nor destroyed. The system itself is very free to have a beginning without violating the law. Outside of our universe, our isolated system, different rules may apply. But that is speculation and doesn't matter here, because there is also an important element of Big Bang cosmology that Danny is neglecting. Science tells us that the Big Bang event began with all of the energy in the universe condensed into an infinitely small point, from which it then expanded. The Big Bang does not start with nothing, it starts with all energy already existing. This is entirely consistent with the first law of thermodynamics. It's very possible that energy has always existed and will always exist. If something must be eternal, why not the eternal thing be something we all acknowledge and can prove exists, and that we equally agree cannot be created nor destroyed? If you want to argue that something other than energy is eternal, that is, by necessity, an extra assumption. And by Occam's razor would automatically be the inferior explanation. So we have this contradiction. We have this tension. Both laws are equally true, and yet both laws have extrapolated into the past contradict one another. I can see why one might think that. But because these laws apply only to isolated systems, there is no contradiction. However you look at it, the start of our universe was not the start of matter and energy. It was not created in the Big Bang. Perhaps it has always existed, and this is merely the most recent form. Or perhaps the energy started from a currently unknown process outside of our iteration of space-time. 
The point is, none of these scenarios create a contradiction to the laws of thermodynamics. From a secular perspective, they can only get light about halfway across the universe. That's why they have inflation theories and superinflation theories and so on, because they have a problem. They have a light time travel problem. What Ken is saying here is true and worth going over for a minute. If you search for this light travel problem phrase that creation astronomers like Jason Lyle use, you won't find published research. But that's because working cosmologists call this the horizon problem. In 1964, American radio astronomers Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson discovered the cosmic microwave background, CMB for short. No matter where in empty space you point a satellite, you will find a nearly identical pattern of static. If you look at this picture of the CMB and think you're seeing something from the Predator movies, you're not far off. The static hiss emission pattern is a thermal spectrum and can be used like the infrared of heat vision. 16 years earlier, in 1948, Ralph Alpher and Robert Herman made a prediction that if the universe began hot and dense, as the Big Bang model claimed, then the universe should be bathed in thermal microwaves at a temperature of about 5 degrees Kelvin. Lo and behold, that predicted evidence was found in the CMB, a nearly perfectly uniform 2.7 Kelvin. It makes sense that an isolated system like the universe would eventually reach thermal equilibrium, with hot spots and cold spots eventually evening out like putting an ice cube in a cup of hot coffee and eventually a uniform temperature is reached. However, the way regions of space exchange energy is via photons moving at the speed of light. But with space expanding in all directions at an accelerated rate, there hasn't been enough time for the photons from one end of the galaxy to have reached the other side of the galaxy. And if this is the case, then how has such a perfect thermal equilibrium already been reached? Scientists call this the horizon problem. But the horizon problem is a problem like a word problem on a math test is a problem. Those who pose it as a question are already aware of the solution. As Ken mentioned, inflation cosmology is a theory of exponential expansion of space in the early universe that is accepted by most physicists. It postulates a minuscule period of exponential expansion from 10 to the negative 36 seconds after the singularity until approximately 10 to the negative 32 seconds after. Since its development in 1979 by Alan Guth, New observations have confirmed inflation model predictions. It carries explanatory power not only for the uniformity of the CMB, but also a lack of magnetic monopoles, isotropic appearance of the universe, and the flat shape of the universe. Cosmic inflation isn't a mere post-hoc idea. It is backed by evidence, tested, and has accurately predicted future data. The horizon problem was a question asked and now answered. But why was Ken referring to the 40-year solved horizon problem as a light time travel problem? That revised name sounds a little like the unsolved young universe starlight problem. We used to call that the starlight problem. The nearest galaxy to us is, is two million, one and a half million light years away. Wouldn't it take one and a half million years for the light to get here? And yes, in straight space, it would. Straight space is a new term to me. So I went searching for any astronomy-related matches. Charles must have a special meaning for this phrase outside of scientific usage. I found these two papers on social expectations of heterosexual norms displayed within certain public locales, or straight spaces, but somehow I doubt that's what Charles was talking about. But even the Big Bang theorists will say that, that space and dimension unfolded. Couldn't find any physics literature that used the word unfolded, but they do agree that space and time, our four dimensions, expanded and continue to expand. As long as Charles isn't building anything on top of this folding idea, like overlapping timelines or something, we can let it pass as just strange wording. Some people want to take uh, mentions of the, uh, in the Old Testament of God stretching out the heavens like a tent or like a canopy, stretching that light miraculously to give you. 
Telescopes much larger and more advanced than these were used in the early 1900s to measure what became known as redshift, a form of measurement which provided empirical evidence that space was stretching. The film doesn't explain redshift, so it's worth a very brief mention. It is related to the more familiar concept of the Doppler effect, where the sound waves of an object moving toward you are more compressed than the sound waves of the same object moving away from you. It's the apparent change in the frequency of a wave caused by relative motion between the source of the wave and the observer. With sound waves, it creates that signature noise. I can demonstrate. As we understand that wave amplitude affects pitch. Similarly in light, wave amplitude affects color. The compressed coming toward you waves are more blue, and expanded, or stretched, going away waves appear more red. Now, according to Albert Einstein, if you actually stretch the fabric of space, you will also essentially necessarily have to stretch the fabric of time. Obviously, the full concepts of Einsteinian relativity and space-time expansion is a difficult one even for the brightest physicists. But let me take a shot at relaying the subtle flaw in what Charles is claiming here. Height, width, and depth XYZ axes, and time are the four dimensions we observe. When we say that space is expanding, like this stretching fabric that the movie illustrates, we can be aware of that expansion only if we hold one dimension fixed. And that dimension is usually time. In order to see that the fabric is bigger now than it was a few seconds ago, we have to allow time to progress. It would be meaningless to stretch the time with the fabric, because then we wouldn't observe any changes. We'd always be viewing the fabric at the exact same instant as time stretches with everything else. So in order for anything to stretch, it has to stretch in relation to something fixed. If you're thinking that selecting time as the variable to be fixed is an arbitrary decision, you're right. We could fix one of the other axes and compare the movement of time to depth. But comparing time to a fixed x-axis isn't useful in a discussion about history. It can be confusing to think about because we humans experience time only linearly. But suffice to say that when Charles says that the stretch of space means a stretching of time, he is disagreeing with Albert Einstein, not agreeing with him. So Andromeda is not just two million, one and a half million light years in spatial displacement over that way, but also it's time stretched. As we discussed, it can't be both spatially stretched and time stretched. You can describe it either way, but you can't have both at once. So unfortunately, this time-stretching idea doesn't actually help the light to travel further. Where Ken intended to make cosmic inflation and starlight travel seem like they're the same, cosmic inflation addresses a spatial problem with a spatial discovery. Starlight is equally a spatial problem, which isn't solved by simply ignoring time. It would need its own spatial discovery that has not yet been proposed. William Tift, who back about 40 years ago discovered something interesting in uh, the redshifts of, of galaxies. The uh, universe consists of concentric shells of galaxies. In 1976, William Tift published a paper about an idea he called redshift quantization, that the values for measuring redshifts tended to cluster around multiples of specific values, which Danny and others interpret as rings of galaxies. Astronomers more or less have ignored Tift's work over the years, and yet actually it's staring them in the face. The editors of the Astrophysical Journal were so apathetic to the idea that they included a note on the paper stating that they could neither find errors within the analysis nor endorse the analysis. However, redshift of nearly every value in the spectrum has been observed, giving Tiff's idea little predictive or explanatory power or explanatory veracity, particularly in the light of the cosmological principle, which tells us that due to the uniformity, size, and accelerated expansion of the universe, 
and the limitations in observation distance that any observer from any arbitrary point in space would have every indication that they are the center of the universe. We all think that the universe revolves around us, and we're all wrong. And we're near the center of that. If we're placed there by God for some reason, that's what you might expect. In fact, in the time since Eric filmed these interviews, astronomers have been busy producing a massively detailed map of the universe that indicates that, in fact, the Earth is on the outskirts of a side superstructure of galaxies that has been named Laniakea. Given the Church's somewhat embarrassing backing of geocentrism, the rigid idea that the Sun and all the heavenly bodies went around the Earth four centuries ago, I'm not sure what Danny has to gain by asserting a Milky Way-centric universe. From most people's views, the location of our galaxy has little to do with how it came to be. Probably best to leave that argument alone, Danny. Next on the Science of Genesis Paradise Lost. Part 4. Intergalactic Planetary. Tap the subscribe button and the bell icon so you don't miss it. If you'd like to support the work of Apologia, please consider becoming a patron at the link in the description. Thanks for watching.